0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm.
1: Hello and welcome. This is the podcast of Tech EU and another interview special episode recorded in Helsinki. I am Andre Degler, the host and producer of the show. This episode is kindly sponsored by Google Cloud for Startups and is part of an exclusive interview series with prominent people in tech, which we recorded live at Slush 2019. If you don't want to miss the rest of the interviews, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. So let us see what we've got for you today.
0: So we think apprenticeships are the perfect model for creating an alternative to university that can be as prestigious as going to some of the best schools.
1: The
2: first country we sold into was Germany, wasn't even our home market. Uh, so we were truly born globally. We have never been a domestic company taken international. And you can only do that from Europe.
0: Data shows that actually academic performance does not correlate with future success.
2: Pre-IPO, we knew all our shareholders. Post-IPO, We don't know our shareholders. That's the
1: biggest difference. So the first thing I wanted to share with you today is an interview with Sophie Adelman, uh, the co-founder and president at White Hat. Sophie herself has received a bachelor degree from Cambridge, then a graduate fellowship at Harvard and a an MBA at Stanford. But now, at the same time, her startup is offering an alternative to traditional university education. White Hat is taking the idea of apprenticeship to a new level and has already raised 20 million US dollars to make it happen. So let's check out what it's all about.
3: All right, we're back in. Here we are with Sophie Adelman of White Hat. Hi, Sophie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much
0: for having me. It's great.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about the story of White Hat? How did you guys get started and what problem are you solving?
0: So the idea for White Hat came about because we believe that um, the university model is broken, essentially. So today, if you want a great career, this is the expectation that you have to go to university because it gives you both the access to opportunity and the credentials you need to be successful. And it's those credentials that are used by employers to decide whether or not to give you a job. Um, and people go through this system where they pay a huge amount of money to go to university, whether they pay that up front or they pay it once they're working. And they're not necessarily getting the skills they need to be successful. Um, and in today's world where companies are requiring people to constantly change their roles, people expect to have multiple careers, um, through their lifetime and in fact if we look out 10 years the jobs that will exist in 2030 about 80 percent of them don't even exist today mm-hmm. so people need to have you know skills and know how to learn and, and develop their skills throughout their lives and, and we just don't think the university model um, works and so the idea for white hat was how do we build an outstanding alternative to university mm-hmm. i think a lot of people have tried to tackle the university monopoly problem point solutions whether that's the boot camps or that's online, um, online courses where you, you know, they're really cheap to access. But what they don't do is they don't fundamentally give you that kind of full stack experience of university. They don't give you access to knowledge and skills and uh, community and networks and that, that kind of all encompassing experience, which is why people go. But also, um, I don't think they, they also give you the, the, the relevant skills that employers need to be successful in a job. So that's, that's kind of how we started with the idea.
3: Right. So, so you're recognizing that the world of work is changing a lot and employers are looking for more from their early onset employees. But the university just isn't up to scratch when it comes to providing those skills.
0: That's exactly right. So we see um, the way to solve this problem is through apprenticeships. So we think apprenticeships are the perfect model for, for creating an alternative to university that can be as, as prestigious as going to some of the best schools. Um, and most um, societies that have all these problems around skills gaps and diversity and, and access to opportunity and expensive education, they don't have fully formed apprenticeship systems. Mm-hmm. And so if we can create something like that in the digital and tech and professional services space and give people an on-ramp to an amazing career, we can essentially democratize access to those career paths while actually adding real value to companies and move away from a world where you have this like, single shot of education at the beginning of your career and then you go and work to a world where you'll do multiple apprenticeships over the course of your career lifetime, either back-to-back or staggered, and you will constantly be learning and changing throughout that experience.
3: And it's kind of about approaching this modern problem with almost an old school solution because apprenticeships are something that we've been having for, for such a long time, but they weren't up to scratch and fitting with our modern needs. So That's how exactly does right. White Hat be able to bridge the gap?
0: Right. So you're absolutely right. And there's a nice thing about the, the term apprenticeship is that everybody understands what it, what it means. It means work and training combined. And in some countries, like Germany, they're very prestigious. You, you, know, you become a master apprentice. It's, it's really seen as very prestigious. And, and we've got to create that, that kind of aspirational apprenticeship system um, for the jobs of today and the jobs of the future. So people can build that. And what White Hat does is kind of three main things. First of all, we have a matching marketplace that allows us to assess for competencies, skills, values, and fit, role fit. So we help on-ramp people into these roles at great companies like Facebook and Warner Music and Clifford Chance and companies you would never expect to take on non-graduates. And then we support them throughout their apprenticeship and we deliver the training in a blended way. So we use online and we also use coaches who are experts in their fields, combined with amazing content from outside the apprenticeship sector. Because one of, the, one of the problems we see with university is they are controlled by academics. And so what you learn is either esoteric, because it's... You know, academic specialism yeah. or it may be old uh, it's not cutting edge yeah. and so we, we need to bring that to the table and the third thing that we do is we say okay why do people go to university one of the reasons people go to university is for the, the experience the social experience the networks the community and that's really powerful it's really valuable mm-hmm. and so we, we're going to try to build something that, that gives you an equivalent if not better experience for Mm -hmm. these young people and and for people throughout their careers so that they are still getting access to that kind of social capital. And that evolves in the future because I actually think there's a way for us to create a whole ecosystem of services for these people because essentially it's a new social class. These are people who haven't gone to university. They're working at some of the best companies in the world and they have needs
3: yeah, and I think it's really important that you recognize the role of social capital, especially, you know, when you go to the university. That might not be the first thing you're thinking of, but it's something that is one of the most integral externalities of the university experience.
0: It's so true. In fact, in the UK, where, where I'm from, um, about 50% of people go to university right now. And when you ask people, they they sort of stumble into it. But they're like, oh, yeah, but it will be great because all my friends are going. And I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that this sort of 50,000-pound party is no longer worth it. I and mean, in the U.S., people go and, you know, we, we talk about this being the $200,000 sweatshirt. You know how in the U.S. everyone has, you know, swag. They have clothes that say, I went to the University of Michigan or whatever. Yeah, and
3: it communicates something. So it's a
0: social status. Mm-hmm. But you're paying $200,000 for a sweatshirt? Yeah, that's yeah. insane. So I think people are starting to wake up to that. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and something that's really um, important about changing the understanding of apprenticeships is getting the right employers on board. Can you talk a little bit about some of the great employers you've lined up and kind of how you've been reaching out to them and encouraging them to change their thinking when it comes to taking on um, non-graduates?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for many of these companies, they've never taken on non-graduates before. They put on their job descriptions, you know, a first or second class degree from a top university is required. And so we're really changing perceptions um, and changing perceptions around the kind of person who does an apprenticeship and the value of an apprenticeship and, and the value to the company of the training. And so when we talk to these companies, the first thing we have to do is, is kind of break down their perceptions around what, what, you know, what kind of person does an apprenticeship. They may think that that person is not as smart, not as driven. Maybe they failed out of school. Well, that's not true. I guess the reality of today is that there's a real choice now between going to university and not going to university. And um, we have kids who have straight A's um, in in their subjects. We have young people who've held down, you know, jobs in. You know, they may have been. A team captain at mcdonald's they've been captains of sports teams they've been semi-professional they've mm. they've done some amazing things and what we do is we translate some of the skills and experiences and the competencies they have built up into a rubric that employers can use to measure potential so the big thing for us is is demonstrating to employers through our digital platform and through the profiles that candidates create the personality and potential of these young people mm. And then the kind of companies we're working with now include, uh, I mentioned some of them before, but the the big financial services firms, some of the big multinational tech firms. Um, Google works with us on digital marketing apprenticeships. So imagine you're 18, you do 18 months, two years with Google doing digital marketing, and you come out and, and you can work anywhere. And I think yeah. that's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm.
3: And what are some of the ways that, how, how did you convince companies like Google to come on board and say, okay, this makes sense? How does it make how do they understand it's a fit for them?
0: Right, so the, the first thing to say is it's not a charity or CSR initiative for, for these companies. They, they have to have headcount to hire somebody to do a job. So it's a real job. It's a paid job. It is employment over the course of 18 months. They've got to have that commitment to bringing somebody on board. So then we stop looking at the business case. If you're going to, to take on someone on an apprenticeship, you've got to have a real business case for doing it. And some of the business cases are around retention. Apprentices, on average, stay for four years, where graduates, on average, stay for two years. So that is a real factor. When you bring on a graduate, you've still got to train them. So they're more expensive to hire. They tend to stay for a short amount of time. And you've still got to put them through a training program to teach them how to do the job. And then they probably want a promotion after six months. So when we actually take it back, actually, on average, our apprentices are... Um, L- less expensive for employers, and they last—you know—they stay for longer, and that's a real value add to the company. The other thing to say is that um, all companies that we're talking to these days are trying to um, bring in diversity—diversity diversity of from from a gender point of view, from an ethnicity point of view, and increasingly looking at um, intersectionality and socio-economic diversity. With the young people we work with, um, they are primarily from. Um, less advantaged background, so 50% of claim free school meals um, we have about 65% of our apprentices who are non-white British um, and it's about 50-50 gender split and so when companies say we are trying to solve our diversity problem we say why don't you build and invest in a pipeline of diverse talent so that over the years these people who stay longer become your future leaders and it's building that business case for why this solves their problem and actually the return on investment they will receive that actually starts to change their minds. Mm -hmm.
3: Wonderful. And something that that I really appreciate about your approach is that you look at these trainees, their backgrounds, and you identify areas and skills and leadership qualities. You mentioned before the shift manager at McDonald's, for example, that can be translatable to some of the, the world's most top leading firms.
0: It's so true. If you ever get a chance to hire somebody who spent a couple of years leading a team at McDonald's do it they have an incredible training program um as do the gap as do a number of great um employers where they really give people a huge amount of training and, and skills and and so you forget that for a lot of young people they they need to work they aren't from necessarily families where they have the opportunity to just you know get pocket money from their parents or, or support for for hope, for, how, for housing and I, I think that's something we should celebrate, not look down upon. Many of the young people we work with have to be very mature, they've had to grow up maybe they were a carer, maybe they had to care for a parent, maybe they had a younger sibling that they had to um, fend for or teach so I think there's there are a lot of very transferable skills that we should be identifying, um, and we do that through a mix of competency-based assessment, big five personality tests. Um, we also do social referencing, which I think is the most powerful way to collect um, references. Can, can it, you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, sure. So. Um, when our candidates apply, they create this digital profile to showcase their personality and potential. And they create these timelines where they, they talk about the experiences they've had and they identify the competencies that they believe they've, uh, developed, the skills and competencies that they've developed, whether that's leadership or conscientiousness. And then what they can actually do is they can submit for a reference from somebody from that experience, whether that's a former teacher or a former employer or a youth worker or the, you know, the captain of their sports team. And that person can actually then write both a qualitative reference, but also capture structured competencies. Um, and that structured data allows us to triangulate between what the candidate says, what their reference says, and what we see to really identify their true competency range.
3: Wow. That, that, that is really, um, really compelling. And, and especially about building this pipeline and more diverse talent by recognizing those skills that might not have been, um, on the, that specific resume that that top employer is looking for, you're able to demonstrate that this might be a really great candidate for this position. Yeah,
0: I think you've got to move away from academic achievement as the as the sort of benchmark of success. I, I mean, I'm very good at taking exams. But it doesn't make me any brighter than somebody who isn't. I just can operate in that environment. And I think we need to separate academic achievement from just life and professional achievement, because the data shows that actually academic performance does not correlate with future success. Now, motivation, ambition correlates with future success. And sometimes the two go in hand, but actually, you've got to remove correlation causation there. So
1: um,
0: I think we need to start looking at where people's um, experiences lie. And we also need to remember that, your academic performance is often a, a factor of the school you went to and how, how many opportunities you had and whether or not you had the time to study because maybe you had to pick a, a sibling up from school or, or go and do a job. So people have complicated stories and um, I don't think we can judge them based on a bunch of you know letters after after their name and I think that's where the world is moving to.
3: Great. And kind of on this theme of complicated stories, um, when I was preparing for this interview, something that, that really struck out to me, um, kind of looking at your LinkedIn and kind of looking at your social media, you talk a lot about some of the outcomes of some of your apprentices um, and kind of where they've gone. Can you um, share an, uh, just an example of kind of how apprenticeship has made such an impact in someone's life and where they've been able to take that experience?
0: Sure. So we've I mean, I'm so proud of, of our apprentices. We've got about a thousand apprentices on programme right now. So um I don't know all of them anymore, though at the beginning I, I I did know all of them by name. Um and it's it's wonderful to see some of them go through um uh, amazing experience with companies like Google. I I just think of one of our apprentices, Zaina, who um, you know, she she knew she didn't want to go to university. She's very creative, she's very um She's a very good public speaker and she's become both a, an advocate uh, for apprenticeships um, and also an advocate for um, BAME employees within the tech world. So she does big events to try and get BAME students into tech for Google, uh, sorry, for Facebook. And, um, you know, she's a, a real, a real live wire and a real advocate. And, and I know that after this, she's going to be even more successful. And she's somebody who has embraced um, the fact that she's a pioneer and is mm-hmm. trying to advocate for others and educate her community uh, around that. So that's just one example of a, a great apprentice story. We've got lots of great stories because everybody is unique and everyone's different. But I think what unites them all is they're all bright, ambitious young people who have actively chosen not to pursue that university path because they don't mm-hmm. either enjoy academic learning or feel that it's not the right fit for them or feel that actually they can't afford to go to university. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're very brave, but I also think that they will prove to be the ones who are most successful. Mm-hmm.
3: Wonderful. And kind of what's next on um, the horizon for White Hat when you're thinking about um, these stories and bringing more uh, apprentices on board, um, where, where where do you hope that, that this company goes and what do you hope to, to achieve with it?
0: I think we've got very big ambitions for White Hat. Um, we currently only operate in the U.K., but we're looking at um, expanding internationally. So that's kind of the horizon over the next couple of years. There is so much opportunity for what we're trying to do. And every major economy has all the same problems around rising costs of education, mismatch between skills needs and skill development, um, diversity issues. These problems exist in all of these countries. And I think the U.S. is a very interesting space for us. Um, but there are also a number of other developed and developing economies where we could where we could grow for us it 's about wherever there are large numbers of young people who want to take a different path and employers who are willing to invest in you know young people 's development and also their ongoing development there 's a reskilling and upskilling throughout their career um, we can We can definitely bring our our service to bear there mm-hmm.
3: and when we think about the future of work, where is the the most critical area that employers should be thinking about when it comes to bringing on new types of talent.
0: It's a really good question. I think that we, we know that the digital and tech space is expanding. And one of the, one of the challenges now is not how do you build things, but how do you understand what you've built? So I think actually that the skill that we're hearing people need the most is now data, data wrangling, data analysis, data science. We speak to companies every single week who want to not just hire young people into data science roles, but actually upskill their existing employees in in data techniques. There's so much data out there, and people just don't have the skills to know how to use that data and and, and analyze it. And so, you know, data science I think is going to be that for the next phase of um, development is going to be the the most attractive skill sets.
3: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for speaking with us. It's really exciting to learn more about White Hat and um, look forward to seeing where it goes. Thank you so much.
1: Our second interview is a conversation with Peter van der Doos, the co-founder and CEO of the Dutch Unicorn at Yen. The company does not make an awful lot of headlines, I have to say, but at the same time, it powers a huge number of transactions for different merchants globally, both online and offline, and you definitely know the names. They will be mentioned in the interview itself. I will just say that it has even managed to sign a contract with eBay, and next year it will power transactions there as well. So, Let's get to know more about the company and its co-founder.
2: My name is Pieter van der Does. I'm a CEO and co-founder of a company named Adyen. And Adyen is doing payments for companies. So when you pay at a company, the platform that's being used in the background is often Adyen. As a consumer, you don't know. But if right. you do your Netflix, your Uber, your Spotify subscription, it runs over our platform.
1: Okay, I got it. So how is Adyen then different uh, from any other payment company? Like, I don't know, uh, Stripe, PayPal, uh, Square, whatever else, all?
2: We are particularly good at companies that deal in multiple countries. Uh, so the ones I mentioned are, are very global companies. And what we make sure if you connect to Adyen, that you can roll out through many different geographies without having to change anything. That means that it works in many countries because it also has the local payment methods and that we are connected to the local card schemes. What is also very typical is that we are on all channels, so mobile, online, but also in stores. So actually the the physical terminals, the brick which is in Mm -hmm. uh, stores, we also do. So that means that you can roll out internationally and with stores and online all in one system.
1: Interesting. And uh, you as a company have been around since 2006, if I'm not mistaken, right?
2: Yes, we founded uh, in 2006, but we the, all the founders and first employees came from the payments industry.
1: Okay. So is it something that you're passionate about, uh, the payments industry? Is it something that you were passionate about uh, back in 2006? How did it all start for you?
2: Yeah, we look a little bit differently at ourselves. We see ourselves as an engineering company right. that happens to tackle payment problems. When we regrouped, we also looked at other, at other things, maybe reservation systems. Uh, so 24 seven recurring business. That's, that's what we were good at. Didn't necessarily have to be payments, but what you saw in, we had a payments company before and we sold it to WorldPay RBS Mm -hmm. at the time and we felt there was very little innovation. So we saw an opportunity and hey, if you have the team and if you see the opportunity, then. Uh, that that's a, That's a great start to work in an area where you already know so much about, so that's more how it happened rather than I would not say passionate about payments. I'm more passionate about building a company and solving uh, problems
1: right so how how has it been going so far then in terms of uh, building and growing
2: Well, the journey has led us to now twenty two offices mm-hmm. uh, having quite a number of very very large merchants. And very proud that we started a few years ago, also adding that physical part to it, which we always wanted, so stores, mm-hmm. and that that's being picked up by the likes of uh, Nike. That that's that that's very cool.
1: So if you buy something in a Nike store, you pay through Adyen. Yeah, that but you case? don't.
2: Yeah, you see it on the terminal because it says Adyen on the terminal. Right. But it's also if you go to Joe and the Jews, or there are many to H and M, dependent on in which region you are. But yes, that's, uh, uh, I'm I'm quite proud that we moved from being an online player to also uh, being able to help merchants in all areas. And you're a
1: public company.
2: We went public last year, which is, uh, for us wasn't the big milestone. Wasn't it? No, because we, nothing changed really. We are running the company with the same people. Basically, pre IPO, we knew all our shareholders. Right. Post IPO. We don't know our shareholders. Uh, that's the biggest difference.
1: <laughs> right. So I I read some uh, previous like interviews and stories on ADN. And one of the things mentioned there was the ADN formula. What is it? Well,
2: at a certain point, because we had a company before, we thought it's good to help people to explain how we want to run the company. So one of the things which are in there is... If you run a company in multiple time zones with, with 85 different cultures, because that's how many different nationalities we have in the company, you have to pick up the phone, use Zoom or Skype or whatever you use to talk to each other. Or if you're in the same office, walk to, walk to each other because across time zones and cultures, you have quickly differences in understanding and that creates friction and that's very slow. So we said, don't hide behind email, pick up the phone. So it's one of the formula things. We know that we don't want to go into customization for single merchants. So we say that we develop for all merchants, or at least for a subset and not for a single one. That's in the formula. We say winning is more important than ego. Why is that in the formula? Because we need to realize that if you do, for example, a great sales deal, there's also a fantastic engineering team that made this product. And maybe it's not the sales guy or sales girl right. who, who got in the contract, but let's just celebrate as a company the contract rather than, because it's, it's not very motivational if you build this fantastic platform, if you know that especially the few things which were in the last release, which you put in, made the customer choose Adyen, and then you have to applaud for somebody who just picked up the contract to, for, from your point of view. So we celebrate successes jointly. Hence, winning is more important than ego. So we have eight points like that. Every point has a story with it. And so internally, we do the storytelling with it. But if you want to, you can look it up. If you Google Adyen uh, Adyen Formula, you immediately have it. It has helped us to speed up people to understand how we work.
1: Perfect. I will certainly uh, leave a link to Adyen Formula in the show notes uh, for this Podcast, But speaking of notable customers uh, that you've got so far, uh, you also landed eBay, right? Yes, we did. Like so how, there... how, how come that you were able to d- displace PayPal for eBay?
2: So there, there's a whole process behind it. And uh, some things that people say about it, like they kicked out eBay, like eBay kicked out PayPal for Audion. Yes, they changed supplier. Reason why is that, that eBay felt they were better off in sourcing a lot of management around the payments. PayPal was doing that management. So for example, if you had a dispute uh, with a seller, PayPal mm-hmm. would manage the dispute. eBay said, we want to do it ourselves. So if they so they decide to build that functionality internally and then they wanted to have the specialist to just handle the payments. Oh, okay. So when the requirements changed, then it became very logical to select Adyen. And for us, of course, it's such a, a fantastic company and a fantastic win for us.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. But what I also read in in a, one of the stories that um, were uh, writing about uh, this uh, deal was that the cash uh, changed uh, hands between Adian and eBay in the like the other way. Basically Adian sort of paid to eBay uh, for uh, for this deal. How did that work and how does it uh, uh, what kind of deal was that then?
2: There are warrants mm-hmm. which are linked to the volume which so, there are warrants with a certain performance uh, for them to be uh, executed, which are given to, e- to eBay. Mm-hmm. The payment, so, the payment, the transactions itself are charged in line with how we charge other customers. Of course, eBay is very a very sizable company. And uh, for sizable companies, there is, of course, a tiered structure. So you get in the lower, in, into lower pricing volume related. So that's fairly standard. So we never paid them anything. But they said, if we give you so much volume, at the time, the process volume of eBay was similar to everything that Adyen processes Whoa. together. So if we sort of double your total volume, then we want a little bit of upside in the extra value it creates for Adyen. Right. So we have done that in terms with warrants. So we never paid them anything. Mm-hmm. It's just that they said, "If we double you, then we also want a small, a very small stake into the upside that it does to your valuation." Yeah, this is really interesting. So, has it been worth it uh, for for Adian? So we didn't we didn't pay for them, and uh, we are in a rollout schedule. There is a limitation in the contract with PayPal up to the summer of 2020 mm-hmm. that they can only switch a limited amount of volume. So the rollout is still
1: taking place. So and uh, like getting such a huge customer, does it mean for you that you have to also grow the infrastructure twice as much as uh, as you used to have? Not
2: really, because when we when we build the company, we build this with a, with a very different infrastructure, which you can scale linearly. Mm-hmm. So adding more more hardware to it creates more processing power, whereas some other systems more hardware creates more overhead. So in the design, it's designed uh, to do this. So that was all taken into account. Right. It's never zero work, but it's, uh,
1: uh, everything is built to, to do tenfold of where we are today. Right. And uh, so what I also wanted to ask, you just recently announced uh, this card-issuing offering. Yes. Uh, what is it and uh, who is it for?
2: All right. So card-issuing, it's not intended to put a new credit card or debit card into your pocket as a consumer. Right. It's for our merchants. Think about a marketplace or let's do the example an online travel agency. Mm-hmm. Somebody books, pays the travel agency, and now the travel agency has the money which has to go ultimately to the hotel in, say, Peru. How do you get it to Peru? You could issue a virtual card, mm-hmm. put the money on that card, and then the hotelier in Peru can enter that in the terminal which he has in his hotel, and then he gets settled locally. And so it's an efficient way of getting money from OTA to Peru or uh, we announced that we work with Glovo, Mm -hmm. uh, the courier service. If you have a courier who's buying something for you because you order it and you issue a card to that courier, he can actually pay in the store. But what's the risk is that you're giving uh, as Glovo courier cards and that there's misuse of it. Of course. If we issue the card it's very easy to set limitations to that card. For example, that you can only use it in a certain geographical area, that you can only use it with certain product codes. So it's a way how you can really control that card. So the shopper pays to Glovo, Glovo has issued card and that pays at the store
1: and then there's an efficient way of running that process. So basically and all these cards are going to be virtual at the end of the day? It could be
2: a high amount of virtual but that, that and that is also likely to be virtual in a mobile phone uh, wallet. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but it could also be physical.
1: Right. This is an interesting thing. So is it uh, a competitive market, uh, this sort of uh, card issuers?
2: The history of card issuing is that most companies which build card issuing have built it to sell to a bank. And right. the bank is supposed to sell it to issue you as a consumer a card. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The model which we use, that card issuing is being used for merchants, for entrepreneurs has different requirements, and those older systems, it's difficult to make them do this. Here you want easy APIs, being able to issue a high number of cards at the same time, but there's also an uptime issue. You want to make sure that it always works, and uh, you want to be able to set all sorts of limiters on the use of that card. That's
1: typically what we can do. Certainly sounds like you have very much of an engineering approach uh, to, to payments and uh, building this kind of solution.
2: Also, that is an engineering uh, question. And our merchants, if you, we are like eBay is a marketplace, but we have a lot of other marketplace merchants, for them, it's so logical that this is the way to settle to their sellers. Right. And w- then it's also logical that you do it with a single provider, that you do it with Adyen, and that you then don't have to yourself make a patchwork of partners and do it with a single partner, single
1: account manager. Right. And uh, what happens if, or maybe when, I don't know, if your, if your customers get big enough to kind of start to willing to process their payments themselves? Does it happen at all? Is it uh, something that you're afraid of? Is it something you're ready for?
2: The amount of effort that, that goes into building a payment system makes it more logical to do it with us. Right. I always expected when we started this company that what you ask is the truth, that the largest company will build their own payment departments. What you see is that the largest players, there are some exceptions. There are a few who build it themselves, mm-hmm. very, very few. And actually many of them are breaking it down and are actually starting to work with payment companies, hopefully Adyen or maybe another one, but that, that it's just too much engineering resources are scarce. And you don't, as a merchant, want to use your engineering resources for this never-ending payment problems. The payment market is changing constantly. You now see it in Europe with PSD2, right. new regulations, new uh, requirements. And you rather use your engineers to build a cool product because there are, you can buy it uh, already from us or one of our competitors.
1: Speaking of PSD2, is it good for you as a company? Is it bad for you as a company? What does it change for you? It's a, it's an,
2: again, another proof point that payment never is gets to stability. There's constantly new requirements. Now with PSD2, there are two factors very uh, interesting. And one is strong uh, shopper authentication. So you need to have a second factor, which could be voice, could be uh, your thumb, could be a code that you enter. So you have to seamlessly integrate that as a merchant. We help them with that. We make it extremely easy to be PSD2 compliant. It was going to be enforced in uh, September this year. Mm -hmm. It's now postponed a little, but sooner or later it will be there. And we try to uh, help the merchants to do everything that it doesn't impact the authorizations negatively. The other thing that that will happen with PSD2, with open banking, is there will be more new payment methods. Yeah, exactly. And we will implement them, so the merchants don't need to worry about that
1: either. Right, that makes sense. And what is your personal view on the future of safety of payments? Like, uh, what's, uh, what's going to be done, do you think, to make payments more secure, and what makes sense in this?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think it's surprising how it has been running so far, <laughs> that you have a card, and basically, if I, if I now have take a picture of your card, I can do anything. So you see that there are a lot of experiments and new protocols being used to limit the use of that card and to avoid that. Also, what I was just talking about, using second factors. So yeah, if you yeah, store yeah. that card, that there's other way to authenticate you. And I think that it will become easier right now, which sometimes really interferes with the transaction. So merchants choose for a lower level of security because of it's, it's quicker and it, it costs them in conversion if they don't. But there are also very strongly authenticated uh, options now. And some countries are just a lot further than others. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands. Home banking is huge in the Netherlands. Online 70%, 80%. That strong authentication, that's very difficult. There's nothing, even if I give you my phone, there's nothing you can do with it to do a transaction. Right. Uh, so I think you see the future in pockets. The future is not well, it's widely spread, but you see some some countries, some payment methods, uh, which 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 are likely
1: to, uh, to, show, to, to give us a little uh, sneak preview of the future. Right. Do you think the payment card itself will at some point just die down and we won't see it in like 20 years?
2: I think that's the trend. But in payments, everything is slow. Oh, so right if down. you talk oh, yeah. to the most advanced retailers, they say we go cashless, but there will always be a counter to pay with cash. So cashless means... 90% cashless maybe you have to stand in line if you still want to pay with mm-hmm, cash mm-hmm. so I also think for cards yes we'll go cardless but there will always be a percentage of people in the near
1: future paying with cards but directly it's correct right and uh, speaking of the future to round it up what is the future of ADN itself what do you see, how do you see the end game for the company what is it going to be are you going to make it like, wider to cover some other overlapping industries anything like that
2: no, we we feel that there is an enormous uh, amount of tailwinds that we have. We have the move from cash to cards or from what to other payment methods. More companies are selling internationally. There is uh, the retailers are are mixing online with store, and that are exactly the things we're good at. So we want to be on top of the game and really roll out with them. And I think we can grow at a multiple uh, in total process volume than where we are today. So uh, we're all
1: motivated and on board to execute that. Right. And what is your general take then on the European fintech market? Because it seems like it's, uh, it's been growing really rapidly over the past couple of years.
2: Well, if I look at Adyen, I think you couldn't build this company in the US because Adyen started in a country which hardly has a home market. So everything that for other companies is, is foreign For us, it's logical. Uh, The the first country we sold into was Germany. wasn't even our home market. Uh, So we were truly born globally. We have never been a domestic company taken international. And you can only do that from Europe because in the U.S., your home market is so large that you will tend to develop something for U.S. dollar, cards only, and and you can build a fantastic company.
1: Whereas in Holland, you can only build a small company if that would be your approach. Right. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for taking the time and uh, good luck with Adrian and everything you're doing.
2: All right, cheers and thanks very much for being so interested in our company.
1: And that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at Tech EU and Natalie at Tech EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by Sound Pulse. That is sound pulse.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and talk to you in our next episode on Wednesday. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.